Welcome back to Murder Not Murdering with Aaron and Autumn. Hi, Autumn. Hey. I have had a crazy week. We Tell are me about it. Well, we are in the process of moving, which always kind of sucks. So I'm kind of I'm just a bit exhausted over that. Moving but always sucks. It sucks so bad. And I'm not one, I'm not a person that's really good at not being settled. So that definitely has been driving yes. me insane. <laughs> you so, have a lot of anxiety when it comes to something like that. Yeah. I just need to be settled. I need my, my creature comforts around me and then I'll be fine. So it's been a little bit crazy. And this week, uh, I celebrated te- our, our 10 year anniversary for our business. I own a roller skating rink in Seattle and we've, we've done it for 10 years. I feel really excited and proud. Especially- you Well, and especially getting through this year, I feel like this year has been the roughest year we've ever had, you know, with COVID and everything. So it was, it's definitely, I feel really proud of us for making it through it. Yes, you should. You guys have done amazing through this whole pandemic. And last night I DJed um, uh, an event and it was so nice. It was, it was a very small crowd. Everyone has to, is required to stay masked and sanitized. We have contactless card readers and all the things in place. No COVID friendly, very COVID friendly, but it was so nice. I I'm honestly, I teared up several times, just looking at people having a good time, enjoying the music and, you know, skating it out. I feel like roller skating is a really, it's a great way to feel good and you're exercising. So your endorphins are up plus with music, it just, brings it to another level. And I was so happy and so proud. Um, last you night. should be, you guys have worked up. so hard. What an amazing accomplishment. 10 years. That's incredible. A decade. I can't believe it. That is incredible. I am so proud of both you and Josh. Thanks. I mean, it's, it's been quite the journey as you well know. Yes. You guys have put <laughs> so much blood, sweat, and tears it all Mm -hmm. pays off. You guys have such an amazing environment there. I just, I'm so happy that it's so been so successful for so long and I hope it continues. Uh, me too. (laughs) Does my life depends on it? No. Um, (laughs) I mean, it's your your livelihood, (laughs) but speaking of lives, um, (laughs) murder. Yes. (laughs) Let's get down to business. I'm going to go first tonight. And I'm going to be doing the story of Dorothea Puente. She was known as the boarding house killer and also known as the grandma killer. And you will find, you will find out why she's well, yeah, you'll find out why I'm excited. So I want to hear about this. (laughs) I'm going to jump right in. Dorothea Puente was born January 9th, 1929 in San Bernardino, California to two alcoholic parents who were abusive to her, which is kind of Ooh, awful. Too bad. Yeah. Her dad was a cotton picker and apparently they had a lot of trouble making money and she um, had to go in very often find food. It was a very neglectful childhood. Um, but by before the age of six, both of her parents had passed away. So she ended up, Oh my gosh, I know. So she ended up in an orphanage where she grew up. That is a little backstory about her. 
1946, she married her first husband, first of many, um, and he, no judgment. Yeah, no judgment. <laughs> but he, but you'll see why. He died two years later of a heart attack. And this was the first time she began forging checks, but she was caught and she was sentenced to a year in jail. Soon after her release, she got pregnant by a man she did not know well. And she had a baby girl who she gave up to. um, She had a baby girl who she gave up for adoption. So in 1952, she married a Swedish man named Axel Johansson. And he was not a nice guy. They had a 14 year, very abusive marriage. Wow. 14 years. That's a long time. I know. So in 1960, she was arrested in a brothel and sentenced to 90 days in the Sacramento County jail. After being released, she was arrested again for vagrancy. She served another 90 days. Then she wait, sorry. What is vagrancy? It's homelessness. Like she was. Oh, okay. So then she served. And so she served another 90 days. Then she continued kind of down a really bad path of committing illegal acts. And they started to ramp up in seriousness. However, it took a little bit of a break when she became a nurse's aide caring for the disabled and the elderly. Shortly after that, she began managing boarding houses. This is kind of how she gets into it. So she divorces Johansson in 1966 and married Roberto Puente. He was 19 years younger than her. Oh, wow. mm -hmm, Yeah. Cougar. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, but Roberto was not faithful to Dorothea and the marriage lasted only two years. Shortly before the end of the marriage, Dorothea started taking care of a boarding house on um, 2100 F Street in Sacramento. There she provided care and comfort to homeless people and the destitute in the area. So Puente married again in 1976 to Pedro Montalvo, who was a, an abusive alcoholic. She Ooh. really knows how to pick these guys. Up. Yeah, sounds like it. The cycle of abuse is clearly alive and well for poor Dorothea. Well, not that poor. You'll find anyway. <laughs> it's like, I feel bad, but right. The marriage lasted just a few months. It was, it was a bad relationship again, abusive. So it just lasted those couple months. And then Dorothea started to spend time in local bars looking for older men who was, re- who were receiving benefits. She would then forge their signatures and steal their money. She <laughs> She got got caught and charged with 34 counts of treasury fraud. Wow. Yeah, she was busy. She was, yeah, she was definitely getting busy with those checks. The worst part is while she was on probation, she continued to commit the fraud, the same fraud, just kept doing the same thing while she she gave no shit, no shits at all. (laughs) 1981, Dorothea began to rent a room at 1426 F Street. This is not the same place she was previously managing. This is a new place. And this is the place that she will be charged for the nine murders that she committed. So at this point, she has a baking partner in business named Ruth Monroe. 
It's April 1982. 61-year-old Ruth Monroe was urged by Dorothea to move in with her. She had a husband who was sick and, and passed away, and she was lonely. So Dorothea said, come on, move in with me. That was a bad idea. So, yeah, she's not that trustworthy. No. So she um, probably wants her money. Yeah. Well, two weeks passed. And according to William Clausen, Ruth's son, he noticed changes in his mom. For instance, she was not someone who drank a lot. And when he went to visit her, he would visit her every night after work. He'd just stop by the house on the way home and just have a little visit with his mom. He noticed that she was drinking an alcoholic beverage and he said, you know, oh, mom, I know you don't really drink. Where, where'd you get that from? And she said, well, Dorothea made it for me to help me calm down. And that seems a little suspicious. And it's yes, to him. very suspect. Mm-hmm. And he finds it, he finds it really strange because that's just not normal for her. So on April 27th, 1982, William found his mother in her bed unable to speak or move. After being assured by Dorothea, who was caring for her, that she would take care of her, he went home that night. Unfortunately, Ruth Monroe died during the night. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. The autopsy said it was determined. It was an undetermined overdose, which meant that they suspected that it was a suicide. She had a mixture of drugs in her system, and Dorothea told the police that she was she had been very, very depressed and also thought it was suicide. Although Ruth's family adamantly said that she was very happy and cheerful, and this was not like her at all. And her son, who visited her every night, said she hadn't seemed depressed or anything, so it seemed suspicious, and they suspected Dorothy may have had something to do with it. However, the police did not. And they just kind of dropped it and moved on. So in 1988, now Dorothea is taking in boarders at the F Street Victorian that she's living at. And at this point, she claimed to be a nurse during the war and also seemed very grandmotherly, like a very sweet, caring, older woman. And she claimed to be a nurse in the war. Yes. So she had white hair and she was missing her teeth. Which also oh. added to, which also added to her seeming like she was an older lady. Yeah, for sure. But she seemed to be older. However, the police were just surprised to find out later on that she was only fifty nine. But she, I'm told sorry, what? She was only fifty nine years old. But she told, she told the social workers that would bring people to come and stay at her boarding house that she was in her seventies. What the heck? Most women lie about being younger than they right. are, not older. But when you see pictures of her and we'll post them on Instagram and you'll see she looks like a sweet old lady. I mean, she's got Sophia Petrillo vibes like she's well, Sophia wasn't as sweet, but, you know, she's got, <laughs> she has like some a, golden girls vibes going on there. She's like very little old lady with her little white hair and everything in her and little wicker purse. Oh my gosh. Well, it's, it, you'll see, you'll see when you <laughs> pictures of her. Nevertheless, she gets in really good with the social workers in the area. She takes in homeless people. And the other thing that they like about her is that she would take on anyone with any type of ailment from mental illness to alcohol and drug addiction. 
And one such person is Judy Moyes. And Judy Moyes worked for the Volunteers of America program. She was a social worker looking for a place for a man named Alberto Montoya, who I will refer to from here on out as Bert. Dorothea seemed to have a really wonderful place. People would come and go. And she just, again, seemed very sweet and grandmotherly. Another resident she had was Benjamin Fink. He disappeared not long after Bert arrived, but no one thought this was suspicious because he was a transient and it was common for him to come and go a bit. Also, it was not uncommon for several of Dorothea's boarders to come and go just because of the nature of how they lived. Yeah. When you have a boarding house like that, I imagine that people are constantly coming and going. Exactly. But the good thing about Bert is he was flourishing. He, according to Judy, his hair, she came to visit him. He had a great haircut. He had nice clean clothes on and seemed in really, really good spirits. Then a few weeks went by and Judy didn't hear from him. She started to get worried. Bert was a diagnosed schizophrenic, but this was not common behavior for him. It was not common for him to just be in and out of places. So this is starting to raise her suspicions. So she calls Dorothea and Dorothea claimed that a family member had come while she was at church and took him to live in Utah. Judy was not buying it. How long was she at church for, for him to be taken in that amount? That's just weird already. It's odd odd too, to just like you swoop in and then he just disappears. Yeah. You, you go somewhere and you come back, he's gone and you're like, oh, well. And it was, and the thing is, it was very suspicious to Judy because she knew that this wasn't a lot of normal behavior for him and he doesn't have a lot of family. So this just seems strange. Then Judy tells Dorothea, she is going to call the police because this is not adding up and she feels really uncomfortable. She then gets a phone call from a man corroborating what Dorothea had said And also saying that he was the family member who took Bert to Utah. Okay, so this could be plausible then. Mm, He sounded really strange and he didn't know much about Bert. So Judy was like, no. Highly suspect. Hell no. So she calls, so she calls the police and does a missing persons report because this is just not making sense at all. Yeah, to her, this is probably getting weirder and weirder. Mm -hmm. So Judy did say, when you go to interview Dorothea and you go there to her boarding house, interview John Sharp. He was of sound mind and she knew he would be truthful. The cops go to interview Dorothea and they said she was really courteous, super nice, polite, very grandmotherly. You're going to hear that a lot. But John Sharp, confirms Dorothea's story. And the police think that everything seems kind of okay. Dorothea seems very believable. So as the detective was leaving, John Sharp came out and handed him a note. The note said, Dorothea made him lie. And if he, if the cop could please meet him around the corner. Oh my God. Yeah. This now he's like, wait, what's going on here? Yeah. That guy is clearly in trouble. I know. So they go to meet around the corner and he said, Dorothea told all the tenants to lie. He recollected hearing strange noises at night, possibly sounds of something being drugged down the hallway. 
Ooh. And there was an awful smell that came from the upstairs no. room all the time. There yeah. were no, nope. <laughs> it's getting worse. There was also suspicious holes dug in the backyard. Okay. Mm. Hmm, Dorothea, yeah. what the heck is happening at your place? Well, so John Sharp also tells them that he suspects that there may be bodies buried in the backyard. Ooh. So the detectives now are very interested in what the hell is going on. Yeah, for they sure. In, they start looking into Dorothea, find out she's 59. So they're like, what? Yeah, they're like, this is not my grandma. They see her extremely checkered past and that she has a very long rap sheet. Again, she, like she, like I said, she's 20 years younger than they originally thought or what she told to social workers. Yeah, that's shocking, especially since her appearance seemed to match the age she told them. Exactly. The other thing is she was actually on parole at the time. No, what? Yes. She was on parole because she, for check fraud and forgery, including drugging victims on four occasions in 1982, Dorothea posed as a nurse, drugged the elderly, stole their jewelry, credit cards, and checks. And then she was caught again, this time with a ticket to Mexico in her purse when she was arrested. Okay. It's, yeah. They <laughs> no. assumed that she had bought that with the money that she stole from Ruth Monroe, the woman who committed suicide. She yes, was sent- suicide. Mm-hmm. She was sentenced to five years, but only served three for good behavior. Well, she's grandma, right? Mm-hmm. So in November, 1988, the police questioned Dorothea. And again, she was calm and courteous. She was very believable and very nice. I mean, she offered to get them lemonade. I mean, she was just very calm. Like your perfect hostess. Exactly. So they asked her if they could search the house and she obliged. So in her bedroom, they find two prescription bottles. One was overflowing with blue capped pills and the other was an em- was empty, but it said it belonged to a woman named Dorothy Miller. When asked about this, Dorothea said she was a relative that must have forgotten it on a visit. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Unlikely story. So then next, so the next she didn't flinch and they said, we want you, we want to go and dig in your backyard. We have information that makes us think that someone may be buried back there. Did she say no, 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 no way. No. Like I said, she just, she just was very calm about it. And she even, she, she was very calm about it. She even offered to give them an extra shovel. What? I know. It's like, wait, what? She's like, yeah, if you're going to dig up my yard for bodies, here's another shovel. I, I have a few extras in the shed. <laughs> like, what? This woman. I know. So about 40 minutes later, they find material and small leather discs. They are digging down and one of the detectives hits a tree root. He climbs in because he can't really remove it with the shovel. So he climbs down into the hole. And he pulls and pulls and he get, and he finally pulls it out. And it turns out it's human bone. Mm-mm. Nope. Yeah. They showed the bone to Dorothea and she gasps. She becomes really nervous. She just says she doesn't know what to say. She's shocked. 
And it seems believable. Like uh, over and over, people say she's very believable. Yeah, I mean, she may be some kind of Czech fraudster, but she seems like maybe she might not know about those bodies. I know. You just don't know what to think. So the next thing they come across is they find a material that seems like blouse material. They now know a forensic team really needs to come out and CSI needs to come photograph the scene. So neighbors are starting to gather as they're seeing this canopy put up to preserve the crime scene. So there's starting to become all these people. The media shows up, you know, body in the backyard. That's hot news. So the yeah, media, for sure. So media starts to show up. It's starting to become really crowded on F Street So and congested. And it wasn't really a very huge yard, but they did bring in a backhoe to start helping remove the layers of dirt. Dorothea asked if she was under arrest to the police. She said she was really nervous and stressed out with everything happening. And they said she wasn't arrest- She wasn't under arrest at that time. So since she was being so cooperative, I mean, lending shovels, et cetera, they didn't consider her a flight risk. She said she wanted coffee around the corner with a family member. So Detective Cabrera walks her to the nearby hotel where she said she was meeting said family member. And he noticed that he said she seemed like just a really matronly old lady. So I still can't believe they just let her go like that. Well, yeah, they did. And Detective Cabrero comes back and starts digging. He left her there, which just blows my mind. Yeah, like, okay, you know, we're just going to keep digging up your yard, but we'll see you later. So at this point, he finds body number two. He stops and runs to go and get her. He he first talks to his sergeant and says, I just found another body. And he's like, where is Dorothea? And he's like, yes, where the heck is this woman? (laughs) I mean, what kind of oh shit moment was that? I can't even imagine. Yeah. He literally runs back to the hotel and Dorothea is gone. Not surprised. No, that did, that part did not shock me. (laughs) Now she did, when she asked to leave, he was only two feet away from discovering the other body. So the idea is that she purposely asked at that moment to leave because she knew the second body was going to be found. She was aware they were there. So then they find a third body and there's a complete media frenzy. It's kind of a quieter area in Sacramento. So a lot of things weren't really happening there. So there's this huge media frenzy. The neighbors tell the police that in May, there was a smell coming from Dorothea's place that he could not even deal with. It was like a really rancid smell so bad that he could not use his air conditioner because the smell would permeate into his house. No. Yes. He asked Dorothea about it and she said it was just fertilizer she used in her yard. No way. (laughs) So gross. Nope. So that same day when they went to go question him, the neighbor said he found this box with 24 gold and silver teeth. Teeth? Teeth. Yeah. They were thrown in with the idea that the cops have is that she had thrown them in the backyard as she knew that they were going to go out and check 
because Dorothea is not going to pass up some money. No, so obviously she, not. <laughs> but it was, uh, it would be obvious that that would come back and get her. So she just tossed him over the fence and they were in that poor neighbor found teeth in his yard and it, he couldn't turn his AC on because it smelled like dead things. Jesus Christ. So <laughs> that is disgusting. It's awful. So they identify one of the bodies as Dorothy Miller, the same name that was on that prescription pill bottle. They find two more bodies and the smell was so bad that everyone was wearing masks and which, I mean, we're all used to now, but at the time it seemed very strange because literally everyone had to wear masks. So they go and they're continuing to do this investigation, right? They find out that she paid, that Dorothea paid parolees from a halfway house to dig holes in the backyard, but the, she didn't tell them what it was for, but they, they got paid in cash. They weren't asking questions. They were just digging holes, probably assuming it was for some sort of plants or whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they're not really asking that many questions because they've been given a chance at a job. Exactly. And that was another thing that made her appealing to social workers is that she hired parolees to help with housework and things around, you know, not housework, but things that need to be fixed around the house. So one of these parolees was Don Anthony, who was found out to be the person that called Judy Moyes posing as that relative to Bert. So that phone call that she got that said that it was his relative, that was not, that was Don Anthony, the parolee. Yeah. So I definitely don't believe anything this woman has said ever now. Right. But this was another link to Dorothea specifically. Right. Like the grandma lady. I don't believe her anymore. So then they pull down the shed in the backyard and they find a shallow grave. Another body then was found in the front yard right next to a Virgin Mary statue. And that's the strange thing about that body is it was found without feet, hands or a head so that it wouldn't be able to be identified. Very sneaky. And sad. I mean, that, yeah, that's, it's really sad. The detectives find over 300 items of evidence in her house. One of the main things that they found on the coffee table was a book titled drugs and their effects. (laughs) Stop. No open sitting on the coffee table. I mean, what? Oh my God. She's like the, she gives no shit. She's like, like, she had also a book that said like, how to bury bodies in the backyard. I mean, yes. it was, it's crazy. <laughs> so crazy. They found also found a driver's license with her picture with Dorothea's picture on it, but a totally different name. So she was out there stealing identities, making things. Yeah, she was she on a was, roll. She was not rehabilitated in any way. She no. was on parole for goodness sakes. And she's out here just breaking rules left and right. So what they find out is that she would keep certain, she would keep victims in a certain room upstairs, sometimes for weeks at a time. Okay. That's and nasty. It's so gross. <laughs> well, that's why they were, the smell was so strong. Oh no. They went up to that upstairs room and they pulled back the carpet and it was very, very pungent and clear that there had been body fluids and oh. everything all Mm-mm. across that room. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. The detectives believe that everything was so blatant because Dorothea just really thought she'd never get caught. I mean, Clearly. the book, the digging of the holes, 
all of the people like disappearing. I mean, she did pick her victims well, because these were people that she knew didn't have family, didn't have anybody looking for them, but she did not expect Judy Moyes to be the one. I mean, thank God she was like very diligent to even care enough about Bert to do that for him. The people that do social work are heroes in my book. Yeah. I mean, if she hadn't have caught on to this, who knows? Right. So this, so now the body count has gotten gone to seven people at this point. My goodness. The neighbors start putting up signs in their windows, calling it nightmare on F street. <laughs> okay. But F street, that is like the perfect street to I have. Kinda, I kind of thought it was like super clever. It is you know. very clever. So they start to begin the autopsies on the bodies. You remember those leather discs that I said that they found those weird, that weird leather material. Yeah. Was it like shoes or something? No, it, t- it turned out to actually no, be, I don't like when you do that. I know it turned out to be skin that had separated. Oh, oh my, no. Yeah, it was Stop. no yeah. way. Mm-mm. Most of the people were too decomposed for fingerprints. Um, and all but one didn't have, didn't have enough teeth for, to be able to be checked for dental records. That is so sad. Yeah. The police are pretty, they're, they're pretty great in this moment. They go to the social security office to find a list of all who received benefits to that address in the last three to four years. It became obvious that Dorothea would receive benefits for them. And another tenant told them that she would help take care of their money for them. They did find several people that didn't live there for a few years, but benefits were still coming to that address. So yeah, she was helping. All right. Mm-hmm, yeah. Helping herself. Yes. Helping herself <laughs> to some money. Exactly. Detective Cabrera gets a phone call. You know, this is all over the news. It's everywhere. He gets a phone call from a family who says that their father Everson Gilman is a 77 year old who was last heard of when he was going to California to marry a lady named Dorothea Puente. Oh, what a shocker. He hadn't been heard from since 1985, which is when he went missing. Now between 1986 and 1988, Dorothea sent them letters and postcards saying she and Emerson were doing great and they were traveling and everything was fine. The family called when they saw Dorothea, they saw the house on the news. So they contacted him. And also that's when William Clausen, Ruth Monroe's son also contacted the police and said, Hey, these are connected to Dorothea. We don't know what's up. The other family were like, Emerson's been missing. They believed he was alive because they were getting those letters, you know, from but, Dorothea. From Dorothea. But then William Clausen called because he's like, he didn't believe his mom died of an overdose due to suicide. Yeah. Cause so that just didn't sound like her to him. It didn't. So it, all of these things are starting to look even more suspicious, right? Mm-hmm. Now, back to 1988, Dorothea was still on the run, right? After she fled the scene, basically. Yeah, yeah, where she said she was getting some coffee with some friends. Right. So sweet little old lady. Oh, I just so, want some coffee. I just want some coffee. 
So lots of tips start coming in, you know, but they're all dead ends. People that are like, oh, I think I saw her. They're not seeing her. So November 16th, the police get a call from a news outlet that a retired handyman had claimed to spend the, spent the afternoon in a bar with Dorothea. She talked about how he was getting social security benefits and about how they might want to move in together. What? After spending an afternoon together? <laughs> right. Dorothea's like, I know how to do this. I got this. I need money. Yeah, so, she's, she's in this. So the guy becomes a bit suspicious of her. He tells them that she's staying at the Royal Viking Motel. So they go there. They knock on the room door that she was suspected to be in. So this older lady answers the door. And at first she says her name is Donna Giantson. What? Yeah. They ask her for ID and she immediately confesses and says she's Dorothea Puente. (laughs) Of course it's her. You know, she was very open about cashing the victim's checks. She apologized and said she felt bad for taking the checks, but she didn't kill anyone. Of course not. Those bodies in her backyard were just a coincidence. Yeah, exactly. So there was enough evidence at this point to charge her with Bert's murder. In the meantime, the coroners try to identify the other seven bodies. They identify one as Ben Fink, Benjamin Fink, from tattoos on his body. And two other bodies, they got fingerprints from military records to confirm Dorothea Miller. And then they did identify Bert Montoya. So it was definitely. Yes, that's sad. All of them are sad. They are. So soon the rest are added to the list. It's James Gallup, Leona Carpenter, Vera Faye Martin, and Betty Palmer. The cause of death on all of them could not be confirmed, but a connection was made that they were all, their bodies were all dressed in the same manner with quilts and blankets wrapped with duct tape and plastic sheets. So they, they for sure know that they're connected, but they can't prove the way that they were murdered because of the amount of decomposition decomposition that had been going on. Oh, that's too bad. So detective Cabrera puts out a uh, bulletin asking if any other agencies had similar bodies found in the same particular manner. Shortly after homicide detectives reach out and they say that in 1986, they found a body and that body was identified as 77-year-old Emerson Gilmeth. No. I know. Her pen pal that moved to California to marry her. It's so sad. That is so sad. So on June 19th, 1990, Dorothea goes to trial for nine counts of murder, including Ruth Monroe and Emerson Gilmeth, because they found the seven bodies at the house. So February 9th, 1993, almost five years after the first human bone was found in her backyard, the murder trial begins. There were wow, delays, that took a long time. Right? There were delays that plagued the case for years, including a change of venue to Monterey due to the amount of media frenzy that was in Sacramento. The prosecution had over 150 witnesses and 3,000 exhibits. No one testifies to seeing Dorothea actually kill anyone. And in all the deaths, there's not a clear cause outside of Ruth's. And so they can't determine the cause of death. Now, this becomes a problem with this court case 
because they're arguing that even though they can't determine the cause of death, it doesn't mean that they can't rule it out as a homicide. The way the bodies were found were so similar that the defense was trying to say that it, they, she doesn't deny that she stole from the victims or that she buried them in the yard, but said that they had died of natural causes. Obviously, she did some shady shit, but basically they were trying to say that it wasn't murder. Right, that she just wanted to keep getting their benefits and just didn't want anyone to know that they died of natural causes. Exactly. Got but it. The drug Dalmain was found, it's a sedative, was found in all of the bodies. Despite that, the defense still argued that it was not the cause of death. The people did have underlying conditions, you know, because they were there because they needed help, right? For right. taking yeah. care of themselves. Well, these so, were supposed to be places for them to get back on their feet. Exactly. So it was one of those things where it became a, how do you prove it was murder without a cause of death? So on August 26, 1993, after 43 days of the longest trial deliberation in California history, the jury announces a verdict. They convicted her on three of the nine counts of murder, four of which were 11 to one, meaning 11 thought she was guilty and one thought she was innocent. Those were all the victims from her yard because of that one person. She didn't get convicted of the murder for those ones. Two cases were evenly split and she was charged with first degree murder of Ben Fink, Benjamin Fink and Dorothy Miller and second degree murder of Leona Carpenter. The judge declares a mistrial on the other six counts, including Ruth and Bert, which fucking sucks because there's no closure for those family members. They didn't get any justice. And that's shitty. Yeah, that's super shitty. (sighs) But on October 19th, 1993, she was sentenced to life in prison without parole and two life terms without parole and an additional 25 to life on all three counts. Wow. Just a quick note. There were six other cases linked to Dorothea that never got enough evidence, but she was suspected of murdering all of them. I didn't include those in this because it would have been a two hour long show. So, (laughs) um, but in the wake of this case, it changed a lot of things with social security. So the regulations were tightened and a national database was set up to help keep track of recipients whereabouts because there were people that hadn't lived there for years, but the the checks were still coming to her residence. That needed to happen. That needed to happen. Because those people were victims because somebody really needed their money. Exactly. So Dorothea Puente died in prison on March 27th, 2011. She was a mass murderer who didn't really fit the bill for being such a grandmotherly type. Yeah. It's kind of crazy to think about, but when you see the pictures of her, she looks like just a sweet little old lady. You would never have suspected all the things that she ended up doing. Or her actual age. Or her actual age. I did get my information from Crime Stories, the documentary, and Murderpedia, also crimemuseum.org. So that was so good. Thank you. I thought I just, I found it really 
fascinating. And because it's someone you didn't, you wouldn't necessarily have suspected, made it really interesting to me. Yeah, she definitely, well, also she kind of just didn't give a shit. She just did what she wanted. And even when she got arrested and was on parole, she continued to commit all of these crimes. The weird thing is too, she just kept getting caught. Like every time she did committed fraud, she got caught over and over again, but she still kept doing it. Yeah. She didn't care. She's like, okay, going to keep doing it. Not a heavy enough sentence for me to stop. It's just crazy to me. So up next we will have, we will be back with autumn. Uh, we are going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm going to be doing the Carnation Murders. Now, is this Carnation, Washington? It sure is. Oh boy. Okay. I'm ready. This is a local one for us. I like a little hometown story. On December 26th, 2007, six family members were found murdered in Carnation, Washington, a small rural town, 25 miles outside of Seattle. The population is just under 2000 residents. So it's a super, super small town. You have family out there, don't you? Oh yeah. Carney, uh, <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, that's not my family, but yeah. Yeah. I have family members that live there, but I, but they do, they're not part of this story <laughs> <laughs> just to confirm, but I've spent a lot of time in carnation. Yeah. I think we've gone there once together. Yes. It we, is really small. Very small. I mean, the main drag is a grocery store, a gas station, a restaurant, One traffic light. Yes. A restaurant and a post office. I, I'm sure it's much bigger now. I haven't been there in quite some time, yeah. but it is, a, it's still really small. It, yeah. It's 2000 residents. Very, very, very small. Yeah. So the victims were identified as husband and wife, Wayne Anderson, 60, a Boeing engineer, and Judy Anderson, 61, a postal worker. The couple's son, Scott Anderson, he was a construction worker. He was 32 years old. And his wife, Erica Anderson, a homemaker, who was also 32. And Scott and Erica's children. No. Yeah, six-year-old Olivia and three-year-old Nathan. No. Yeah, that part is just really hard to digest. Yeah. The bodies were discovered when Judy's coworker, Linda Teal, went to check on her because she failed to show up to deliver mail the day after Christmas. Linda called 911 and the police came out to the property to investigate. While the police were there, the couple's youngest daughter, Michelle Anderson, and her boyfriend, Joseph McEnroe, both 29, arrived on the scene. Michelle and her boyfriend had moved into a trailer on her parents' property about a year ago. The couple had met online and McEnroe moved to Arizona to Washington to be with Michelle five years prior. Neighbors of Michelle and Joseph from their time at a trailer park in Fall City, Washington, described them as paranoid and broke. They had, yeah, they had all of their windows in the trailer blacked out. So you couldn't see in, Mm -hmm. which also meant they couldn't see out. But I mean, they blacked out all of their windows. They were paranoid, very paranoid and could be heard having explosive fights over money and talking about people being after them. Huh? That's, that's suspicious. 
Yeah. And it's not a good combo when you're fighting over money, you're paranoid with all of your windows blacked out. It just is it's never, it's not, not a good look. No, the couple paid the $390 a month rent on time, but financial struggles led them to move on to her parents' property. McEnroe's mother, Sean Johnson, who lived in Minneapolis, had been looking for her son for five years. The last time they spoke, he was mad at her for being evicted from an apartment that he had co-signed on, ruining his credit, he claimed. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, so his mom, he co-signed for his mom, and then she ended up getting evicted, so it destroyed his credit. Yeah. And that made Michelle very angry because it it prevented them from leasing an apartment in Seattle that the couple had wanted. Mm -hmm. So he was pretty nasty to his mom. Okay. When he was blaming her for ruining his credit. Yeah. And the last time she heard from him, he was moving to Washington to be with Michelle and had hoped to be married with a baby within two years. Well, those are some plans. Yeah, but he never called her again. That was the last time they spoke. Michelle described herself as the black sheep of the family and was heard always talking about how poor she was, but how her parents had a lot of money. This seemed to make her very upset. She would talk about it to anybody that would listen. And she would always talk about how her and her boyfriend, Joseph, were constantly struggling financially. Michelle and Joseph were brought in for questioning by the police once they arrived on the scene and eventually confessed to the murder of her family. Wow. Yeah. Didn't take much time. This was the same day. Oh my God. Wow. According to police, Michelle had told them she was tired of everybody stepping on her. And if her family did not start showing her respect by Christmas Eve, she would kill them all. Jesus Christ. Yes. I mean, she meant business. It sounds like. Wow. Yes. Michelle and Joseph had been returning to the scene of the crime to report the homicide and to flee to Canada. They were not aware that the police were already at the scene until they arrived. So they had gone back to report the bodies. Yeah. Even though they already knew. That of they course they knew. Yeah, yeah, they did it. <laughs> A 911 call had come in the evening of Christmas Eve uh-huh. from the Anderson's home. The call lasted 10 seconds and to dispatchers, it sounded like a loud family gathering. So they sent two officers there. And when they got to the home, they saw a locked gate leading to the property and they didn't investigate any further. Oh my God. They left. What? I wonder, I wonder if that was a last ditch effort to try to get some help. We're going to find out. Oh no. But it's believed that when the officers did show up, that, that it wouldn't have done any good if they had gone, that the victims had already been dead. Oh, so who called 911? I'm about to tell you, friend. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like so anxious. I know it's strap in. It gets worse <laughs> from court documents. This is an account of what went, what went down on that Christmas Eve in 2007. Oh my God. Michelle had claimed to have lent her older brother, Scott money, and he never repaid her. Her parents had also asked the couple to start paying rent for the trailer on their property. 
Anderson and McEnroe arrived at Judy and Wayne's home for a Christmas Eve celebration, bringing with them handguns that they had purchased from a pawn shop over the summer. Wow. Judy was in the back room wrapping Christmas presents for her grandchildren and McEnroe went into the room to join her. Michelle shot at her father, Wayne, with her nine millimeter gun, but missed. What? Yes. (laughs) Hearing the shot, Judy and McEnroe ran into the room and McEnroe shot Wayne in the head. Oh my God. Yeah. Judy began to scream. Of course, I would have done the same. Of course. And McEnroe turned his gun on her, shooting her. Oh my God. She fell to the floor, still screaming. And McEnroe apologized to her and then shot her in the head. What? Yes. So knowing her older brother, Scott, and his family were going to be arriving shortly for a planned Christmas Eve dinner, they dragged the bodies to an outdoor shed, cleaned up the blood, and burned evidence in a fire pit. Oh, my God. Yep. When Scott Anderson arrived, Michelle confronted him about the money she said he owed. And she he, just killed. She, she, yes. She, oh my God. She and she's like, yeah, where's parents. my money? Yep. She killed her parents and confronted her brother when he arrived about the money he owed her. And he charged her when she pulled out her, her gun on him. She said she thinks she shot him up to four times. She shot his wife, Erica, twice before she reached for the cordless phone and dialed 911 with a 10 second phone call. Oh. Yep for that 10 second phone call for help that never arrived. Oh my God. Isn't that heartbreaking? It is. McEnroe ripped the phone out of her hands, took the batteries out and smashed the phone to the ground. Can you even imagine what that would feel like? You're dialing for your life. I cannot put myself in those shoes. No. makes me too crazy, but that is just unbelievable. Yes. So she, she called for help, but unfortunately it just never came. Erica pleaded for her and her children's lives, telling them you don't have to do this to which they replied. Yes, we do. And McEnroe delivered the fatal shot to Erica in her head. Oh my God. Michelle requested he shoot and kill her niece and nephew, Olivia and Nathan, because she didn't want any witnesses that could turn them in. She also claimed she was doing them a favor because they would be messed up in the head with witnessing the deaths of their parents. Oh my God. That is so sick. Yes. That is so twisted. That is not justified. No, these little babies, no matter what, whomever it is, it's never justified to kill anyone. No, never. It's just that is just the spouting of off of someone who wants to be able to say that there was a reason for what they did. Yes. She's justifying her actions Mm -hmm. and there is no justification. No, they were arraigned on January 9th, 2008 and were being held without bail. The prosecutors had stated they were going to seek the death penalty. So I have a quick question though. Yeah. Whose account was that of that you just told us? court documents. So this is what from court documents. So jumping ahead to 2014 to the trial and sentencing. So this is kind of a weird coincidence that yours took five years and this one took 
quite a bit of time as well because wow. the murders took place in 2007. Yeah. And these. That is so strange. Yes. And the sentencing isn't until 2014. Oh my God. So McEnroe confessed to the murders in trial in 2014 to avoid being executed. December 16th, 2014, a 16-member jury was selected to hear his case. On March 25th, 2015, he was found guilty of aggravated first-degree murder on all six counts. And on May 13th, 2015, he was sentenced to life in prison, avoiding the death penalty because of a statewide moratorium on the death penalty by Governor Jay Inslee, uh-huh. who is still our governor to this he, day. He sure is. <laughs> on March 4th, 2016, Michelle Anderson was found guilty of six counts of aggravated first degree murder. On April 16th, 2016, she was sentenced to life in prison. Mary Anderson, the couple's eldest daughter and only surviving member of the family, was upset how drawn out and long the process was for the conviction and sentencing. Well, of course. And I don't blame her. She just wanted the trial to be over and for them to be sentenced. Oh, yeah. It just dragged on and on and on. And they had confessed. That's ridiculous. Yes. Because of an entitled, jealous woman and her boyfriend, three generations of a family were murdered in cold blood and their futures and their futures were taken away. Yeah. To date, Joseph McEnroe is serving out his sentence at the Washington State Penitentiary and Michelle Anderson is at the Washington Correction Center for Women. And both of them are not eligible for parole, correct? Correct. They're in life in prison forever. Good. <laughs> and I got all my, down. Yes, and I got all my information from the Seattle Times, Murderpedia, and Wikipedia. It was a little bit difficult. I couldn't find any podcasts or any like TV shows about them uh-huh. because it's so vocal. But I felt that this story was so crazy that I needed to tell it six family members were murdered on Christmas Eve that's just awful it's heartbreaking I can't even imagine and their surviving daughter she happened to be at another relative's house for Christmas that year that's just awful I feel like you would have a lot of survivor guilt yeah I would I would imagine it would be really hard and the amount of Christmas would never be the same. No, but the amount of grief to lose that many people in one fail swoop is just heartbreaking. And not only that, they were murdered by your sister who you also lost in a sense, because you're not going to want to be close to that person ever again. No. And even though they're alive, they're pretty much dead to you, I would assume. Uh, Absolutely. There's no way you can ever, I mean, it would take a way better person than I am to be able to forgive somebody for something like that. Yeah. I just don't think I could. I don't think I could. I absolutely couldn't. That's just in, it's just so intense. I just couldn't ever imagine. Yeah. We just keep doing this though with, we didn't know each other's stories. No, there's always, when you said that long trial, I got a little smile. I'm like, 
Well, there's our connection. There's our connection again. Speaking of connections, I wanted to ask you, how's Katie? Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Can you explain to our listeners who is Katie? Katie is from Paranormal Activity, the movies. She is not real, despite what you and Dustin tell me. She is not real. Well, not real. But Dustin is insinuating that the pink velour tracksuit haunting is <laughs> correct. Yes, you both. <laughs> you I were awful. He put a name to her. He well, that's his go-to name for any kind of creepy thing that's going on. He's like, oh, it was Katie. Or if I'm a glasses moved and I'm like, that's weird. And he's like, yep, it was Katie. Oh, I mean, it makes sense. Or the two of you. (laughs) I have no idea. Of course, I had to find my significant other that's just like my childhood best friend. (laughs) Well, you get that sense of humor, right? Yes. And you guys are one day apart in birthdays. That's right. So I will never forget either of yours. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I could never forget yours, but I hate to admit that I would always be like his birthday is one day before Aaron's. <laughs> so I know Aaron's birthday. It's this day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's my fail safe. <laughs> that is so funny. I'm just having so much fun with this podcast and I'm just so thankful for all the listeners, especially now that we're on Apple podcast. I feel that so many people are listening and rating and we're so You've thankful. We've definitely seen our listenership go up and we really appreciate it. Um, if you can, it'd be awesome if you can subscribe to our uh, podcast on Apple podcasts. And please leave us a rating. That's a really good way for us to get some feedback from you guys. You can also reach up, reach out to us on murder, not murdering Instagram. You can DM us. You can email us at info at murder, not murdering.com. Lots of ways to get a hold of us. And then we do also update our website as well, which is www.murdernotmurdering.com. Did I say that enough times? <laughs> yes. It's always murder, not murdering. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yes, we are not murderers. We promise. Uh huh. Plus, I don't like to clean up or deal with gross things. So that counts me out immediately. (laughs) Same though. (laughs) We wouldn't be fit for murdering. No, I have to say as a parent, I'm definitely more well-equipped to deal with bodily things. I leave all of that to Dustin so I could never, ever murder him. Yeah, no. Who would scoop my cat litter if I killed him? I mean. Or pick up when the cats have hairballs. That is the grossest. Yes, mischief and mayhem. You would be on your own. Mommy would not be picking those up. I seriously don't know. I mean, I had cats when I was a kid, but I had hardly any recollection of any of that. Now, having a cat as an adult, I'm like, oh my God, dude, the first time he, he did a hairball. I think I even sent you a picture of it. I was like, yes, <laughs> I can't. Yes. But so that's, that's a Dustin job, not an autumn job. I was most freaked out. I think when he was in the window and he was doing that weird chirping thing where he's like, I was like, my cat's broken. Something happened to him. I caught it on video and sent it to my sister. (laughs) Crazy concerned that there was something very, very wrong with my cat. 
nope, totally normal. I was like, he was watching the birds and then he was having a seizure. (laughs) Yeah, no, I do it like a thousand times now, but I was not, I was not ready. I was a dog trainer for the last 20 years. I am very, very well equipped with dogs. Oh my God. I have no idea what I'm doing with a cat, but, but of course your daughter had to be a crazy cat lady. Well, I mean, after my husband fished him out of a dumpster, he just became ours. <laughs> and now we have a cat and he's actually very sweet and he can be, he's a pretty, he's a pretty cool little fella. Yes. But he is definitely a bit of a, I mean, he is like the quintessential cat hole. <laughs> yes, he is. Yeah. My great Dane will not walk past him. He will stand in doorways, specifically blocking him and just sit there or lay down. Oh, Aggie. He knows he won't, he knows he won't <laughs> walk by. Agador's just standing there like, no, no, I just want to go to the kitchen <laughs> for a drink of water. And he oh. will not move and stare at him. Just like, oh my God. I mean, that's kind of like mischief. She's the dark Lord is what we call her. She means business. She's very sassy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a fun episode. Glad we got to have a little animal talk at the end. That's always nice. (laughs) Yes. If you, if you know us, you know, we like to talk about our animals. Maybe we'll post some pictures of the pets this week. You guys can get to know them a little bit. Uh, cause you're going to hear about them for sure. (laughs) Always. We're crazy pet people. Yeah. Well, this was fun and hopefully I will be more moved next week. And I promise to be peppier because tonight I was just like, I am just so exhausted. I apologize for that, but I am just, I'm doing my best right now. I think everybody can relate, you know, and also my business just opened up more this week. So we've just been really busy. It's It's been a lot. Uh, but we'll see you next Saturday with a brand new episode. There'll be some really interesting ones coming up. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.